Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Bruna. And I'm Nadia. On this month's episode, we're asking, what does it mean to be a man with a visible difference? And for any first time listeners to the podcast, it's worth mentioning here what we mean by visible difference. I'm going to use the definition provided by Changing Faces, the UK charity dedicated to supporting those affected by visible difference. So, we describe visible difference as a scar, mark or condition on your face or body that makes you look different. This could be something you are born with, the medical term is congenital, or could occur or develop during your life. Anyone can be affected by a visible difference at any point in their life. Thanks, Nadia. And as Nadia said... The focus of today's episode is on the experiences of men with visible differences, and we're going to consider what that means and thinking about gender with regards to visible difference. Yeah, and that's exactly what our guests will be covering later. So let's not give too much away. Okay, okay. On the topic of guests, um, as always, we've got a great lineup today. First, we have Fabio Zucchelli, who's a research fellow here at CAR, and Fabio has recently carried out some really great work in this area, and he'll be talking to us some more about that in a second. Then we have Dola Akini-Bothan, who is a wellbeing practitioner at Changing Faces. As part of her role, Dola delivers one-on-one support and has experience of supporting men specifically with a visible difference. And last, we have Ryan Phone. Ryan is also linked up with Changing Faces as a volunteer campaigner. And importantly, today, Ryan is speaking with us about his own lived experience of being a man with a visible difference. What a terrific lineup. Let's hear what they've got to tell us. Fabio, welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's wonderful to have you. Before we delve into the topic that we're here to discuss today, I wonder if you can introduce yourself for our listeners. Yeah, sure. Nice to be here, Bruna. Um, thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, so I'm a research fellow at CAR um, with other great colleagues like uh, Bruna Costa. <laughs> and yeah, I've been here for about six years. The research that I've done is mainly focused on visible difference and uh, across all the kind of broad spectrum of different causes of visible difference, uh, looking at the psychological and social experiences of people with visible differences, ways of supporting affected people, uh, particularly through self-help approaches and, and also the more contemporary psychological models as well. Uh, and also more recently, thinking about the portrayal of visible difference, especially in more modern media like online streaming services and you know, the effect that might have um, both on the general public's perceptions of people with visible difference and individuals themselves. And again, I think uh, particularly over the last couple of years, I've thought a lot more about gender and uh, particularly men with visible differences and how that fits in with masculinity or masculinities, depending on how we kind of understand the concept. I'm also, perhaps importantly, one of only two men currently at CAR. So I'm very, I feel very aware of my gender at work and maybe in the research that that we do. And yeah, I should also say that I, I don't personally have a visible difference, so I don't have that kind of lived experience. Um, Thanks, Fabs, for that introduction. That's really helpful. Really what we're here to talk about today. So as you said, kind of the impact of gender when we talk about visible difference. So I guess to get us started, it would be really helpful to get your thoughts on kind of the current literature base and 
in relation to gender and in relation to men's experiences of visible difference? What's missing? What's the problem? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And the short answer is that there isn't really much at all on specifically men's experience of visible difference, particularly in the peer reviewed scientific literature. Um, you know, I should say that Changing Faces have done some um, some research um, themselves um, as well, which has been really helpful. So I suppose we're starting from scratch, really. And I suppose I should say that, you know, when we talk about men being underrepresented in visible difference research, particularly around the psychological and social experiences of visible difference, that's not to say that men are kind of systematically marginalised in you know, arguably perhaps some of the way that um, uh, particular kind of ethnic minority groups have been historically. It's more to say that, I suppose, um, just like in the same way that research in medicine, for example, cardiovascular medicine, has done research predominantly on men and then made generalisations to the broader public um, based on that research, uh, I suppose my question to pose is, has the same thing happened uh, for men? So the reverse, um, invisible difference research. If we look at the biggest study that's been done to date, which was done by Carr and other collaborators about 10 years ago now, um, they recruited over 1,200 people with visible differences in the UK, and um, only about a quarter of those um, participants were men, um, or should I say male, because I think some were younger um, people as well. But and so, you know, from those kind of studies, and that's a kind of perfectly good example of, of, the, of the representative amount out of the, the visible difference literature, then, you know, we're making generalizations about people's experiences of visible difference and, you know, what might help and hinder people's experiences um, and quality of life. So that's the kind of, you know, particular issue, background issue in the field of appearance and, and um, visible difference research. Um, there are some kind of assumptions or, or even some findings of particular conditions, I think like facial palsy and alopecia, that women are more negatively impacted uh, by um, their condition in terms of their quality of life, which, you know, I, I wouldn't kind of dismiss that outright. Um, but what we do also know is that across the more broad health literature, men are kind of more likely to minimise, um, you know, make light of or, or, or under-report their difficulties related to um, appearance, which is particularly, I suppose, has been a particularly um, female dominated or feminized even um, topic. And also that more generally men, you know, uh, kind of statistically anyway, are less likely to seek help for their psychological challenges and more likely to use what we call externalized coping strategies. So things like uh, aggression, um, alcohol and substance misuse. So things like depression and anxiety might actually look different in men. So might be systematically underreported using the kind of validated measures that currently exist. And uh, we also know that suicide rates are higher in men than in women. So that's the kind of background. So, you know, masculinities are very likely to play a big role in that. So things like stoicism, you know, feeling like you're not really able to show any vulnerability and a sense of being in control and taking kind of practical action. So basically, it's been a struggle to find out what are men's experiences of visible difference. Um, and the compounding problem is that um, we know that men are often hard, hard to reach um, through many of the kind of support organisations 
across the range of different physical differences, uh, but it's also harder to reach men in health research. So there's a kind of double bind there. So really, I suppose what that's led to is a question that I've had and others in the, in the field um, is kind of, are there unique challenges faced by men with visible differences? That's so interesting. And I think it's so complex, as you've already kind of discussed. I think we're talking about so many different factors and issues. I know that you've done some research in this area recently. So I wonder if you can tell our listeners a bit more about that project. Um, Certainly, yes. So that was something that um, I did uh, with a colleague formerly at CAR called Nick Sharrett, along with Alopecia UK, who are a um, national charity who supports um, people with alopecia and raise awareness on the condition. And we found that actually speaking with uh, Kerry Montgomery and Jen Chambers um, from Alopecia UK, um, that actually we shared a real interest in the topic of trying to find out basically um, what the experiences are um, of men with alopecia, given that so much of the research on the particular condition had focused uh, predominantly on women. And also because Alopecia UK as an organisation had 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 found there had been kind of ongoing challenges to to really sustain engagement with men. Um, so often they were being contacted by men who were, were really distressed and um, you know, it's kind of anecdotal anyway. Men who they felt you know um, they perhaps would have been able to help them more if they if they felt able to come to them earlier. And so yeah, we basically um, conducted some research together um, where. We wanted to understand how Alabisha UK specifically could reach men, engage men, because I think they were concerned about perhaps some of the content of their materials being accidentally um, maybe um, tailored more towards women. For example, some of the kind of common things that are uh, ways of coping with alopecia are things like wigs um, and uh, kind of cosmetic procedures like microblading and medical tattooing that at least historically have been more focused towards uh, women and more used by women. And this is, I suppose, also thinking about the kind of stuff I was talking about around um, men in the generalised sense, um, often struggling more to, to actually um, seek help for psychological and social challenges. So what we did was we did an online survey and we also interviewed um, a subset of men who did the survey um, to kind of get a more in-depth understanding of their personal lived experience of alopecia. So around 100 men with alopecia areata, which is the kind of umbrella term for um, a specific autoimmune condition involving hair loss, which can range from patches on the scalp to um more broad hair loss uh, beyond the scalp, face, um, body, and it can the, the kind of the most progressed um, form of alopecia areata is alopecia um, universalis, whereby um, basically that you have no um, hair growth on your body at all, and that can that can happen for a lot of people with alopecia areata. Um, so we yeah spoke with about eighteen people following the um, the survey and kind of in a nutshell, because um, we produced a lot of data, which is great because we um, worked with men um, who have alopecia to kind of help um, put the, the survey together, as well as our 
colleagues at Alopecia UK. So from the survey, we found, perhaps unsurprisingly, that men who had accessed any kind of support or information from Alopecia UK or beyond uh, really primarily did that for kind of medical or um, practical purposes. And very, very few had actually sought any kind of psychological support. So that was in stark contrast, really, to the, the findings combined from the survey and the interviews um, showing that men who took the stu- who did the study did report, you know, pretty significant well-being um, or pretty significant impact on their well-being. So there's a kind of um, a clear contrast between those two things. And, you know, that might be explained, at least to some extent, by those kind of masculine norms that underpin kind of less engagement from men more generally in terms of health and um, and mental health particularly. Uh, we also got some really helpful kind of specific feedback, I suppose, from men in terms of kind of the kind of content that they would find engaging and helpful for them. So things like tips on managing appearance specifically for men. So things like style tips, um, which um, had predominantly focused on um, perhaps more methods that would be more suitable or more commonly used by women and again that kind of reiterates that you know many of the strategies that are reported in the literature particularly things like wigs and medical tattooing don't really feel as relevant to men um they're kind of maybe feminized in how they're marketed and and how they're used interestingly as well um a lot of men particularly those with alopecia that progressed and to beyond their scalp. So I include uh, hair loss, facial hair loss and body hair loss. There was actually a real sense of um, emasculation, um, you know, and, and body hair being perhaps part of, of what can help someone's um, kind of sense of masculinity, you know, which which for many is kind of a, or for many can be a, a very kind of central aspect of one's identity, you know, according to your gender, really. There was also this kind of paradox whereby a lot of the men we spoke with, particularly in interviews, did um, share maybe the generally held assumption that uh, alopecia and hair loss is particularly um, challenging and difficult for women. Uh, but, yeah, the, that, that kind of assumption that the men held also seemed to, you know, they were describing that kind of assumption making things more difficult because it making you feel a bit more isolated or like your kind of the appearance concerns that they did have, you know, weren't as valid perhaps and and men also talked about there being assumptions about hair loss and men being fine because hair loss in terms of male pattern baldness is so you know common particularly you know once reaching middle age and there's some really interesting findings on men in terms of their um, sexual identity so those who identified as gay or bisexual actually had significantly uh, lower um, well-being and also, you know, in the interviews talked about there being a really a high importance uh, of appearance in, in kind of gay culture, really. And, and, and so that, again, tallies with the existing literature. So in a nutshell, I suppose what the findings show is that in alopecia, at least, there are indeed unique gendered experiences um, for men. Thanks, Fabio. That's such an interesting project that you carried out. And um, I understand, as you said, that you partnered up with Alopecia UK, who entered this project with that anecdotal kind of um, evidence and, and, and 
an experience of kind of that limited engagement from men. And it's wonderful that we've now got this um, this study that you've worked on to be able to to have some research to point to. Absolutely. And can I please just make a shameless plug um, for research that Alopecia UK and CAR are engaged in? Um, so what we what we also really don't know is the kind of social and economic impact of alopecia, um, you know, which may be the case with many other conditions affect people's appearance as well. And you know, that might potentially differ by gender. Um, but yes, yeah, so we have a current a study currently um, available for anyone based in the UK age 16 or above who has alopecia just to, to learn more about what the social and economic impacts uh, of the condition Thanks, Fabio. Definitely. Um, we'll make sure to have that linked in the show notes. So if people do want to find out more information or take part, they can do so. I wonder as well, Fabio, if in this really, really interesting project that you carried out, you got any sense from the men that you spoke to, especially in the interviews about kind of what strategies men are using to overcome these challenges and barriers? Um, are men kind of supporting each other in ways that they feel more appropriate? Did you did you get a sense of that at all from your findings? Yeah, I think many of the men that we spoke with, and I should say there was also a, a section at the end of the survey for people to give textual responses um, to the question of basically, you know, what are the kind of really important things um, about their experience of alopecia to them. So we were also able to analyse data from, yeah, sort of, I think around about 70 or so men, um, you know, some of whom gave quite a lot of detail in their experiences. So that was nice to have alongside the interviews. And yeah, there were certainly some some kind of common themes, I suppose. Firstly, as perhaps is unsurprising, there's a, a sense of not feeling really able to to share their experiences and feel okay about having you know real challenges um adjusting to, to to hair loss from alopecia as i said you know particularly in reference or comparison people were talking you know to to how much more maybe they feel that women may suffer from it um and how others might assume the same and equally you know that's kind of undermined perhaps by assumptions about it just being you know normal for men to lose their hair and i think mainly i think there was maybe a real kind of clear absence of things that men described as doing that helped them kind of adjust. It was more talked about in terms of the kind of natural organic process of adjustment. Mm. Um, and, you know, particularly just kind of adjusting to your identity change um, through the hair loss. Um, and it was a real cry out almost for for wanting to see more representation of people that they could relate to um you know i think a lot of them talked about even in kind of popular media you know when you when you see alopecia it's it's mainly in reference to to women mm. very few sort of you know celebrity men out there kind of talking uh, openly and and particularly kind of raising awareness of of alopecia for, for example the difference between alopecia areata um, which is generally what we, we mean by alopecia when we use that term and male fat and baldness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the the really exciting thing about your findings is that, that they, they point to the things that can be done um, by researchers, by charities, by, I suppose, even healthcare professionals to make that process of adjustment 
potentially easier for men or, um, mm-hmm. you know, ensure that support and resources are just as relevant and just as accessible to men as they are for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. I do have a question, too, about whether you feel that we can apply these findings kind of beyond alopecia. So if we think about other visible differences and we can kind of, I suppose, break them down depending on if they're acquired or congenital. I suppose the issue of hair, you've talked about how that can be gendered in many ways. So I wonder if you think there are any distinctions to be made between different causes of visible difference when we talk about this issue? Yeah, I think it's certainly a question that's worth addressing. And the answer is currently we don't really know because so little research is focused exclusively uh, on men with various different causes of visible difference. I suppose theoretically there are very likely to be some differences. Um, For example, when we're thinking about the impact on masculinity in alopecia and particularly more progressive um, or more progressed forms of alopecia I should say so it might be quite a different thing for example in terms of its impact on masculinity to have um, scarring because actually um, you know we know that in various cultures um, scarring kind of you know shows that is portrayed as a form of battle scar and and, you know masculine is very much in keeping with um, kind of um, common masculine norms so I'm sure that across different conditions, there will be particularly kind of uh, nuanced elements that have an impact uh, or relate to one's gender as well. And I think there will probably be massive similarities as well in terms of the kind of ways that can be helpful uh, in a generalised sense, that is to to engage men and, and you know actually be helpful. Um, so some of the lessons that you know we've learned um, with working with Alopecia UK, certainly in terms of the content being relatable to men, and I suppose just giving a lot of thought and time and effort into making the materials um, more kind of gender friendly to, to men as well, and not inadvertently or accidentally using language um, that may be even unconsciously off-putting to, to men. And given we know that masculine norms can play quite a kind of implicit or unconscious role in in men's decision making. I think it would also be really interesting to think about the particular issue of intersectionality, particularly in terms of sexuality, um, sexual orientation across all of the different conditions, because um, it would be really, I think, worthy of investigation to see whether within gay and bisexual and you know perhaps even lgbtq plus the wider kind of communities whether there's any kind of compounding um i suppose effect of um identifying um, with that community in terms of the effects on on men's uh, mental health and, and and social life really and i guess there are there are even particular subcultures that may have an influence as well so mary keeling and other colleagues at car have been doing a lot of great work looking at the experience um, of veterans, so in a kind of military culture, which is you know particularly male-dominated. So I think yeah, there's a lot of intersectionality in terms of people's contexts, the subcultures, people's um, sexual orientation, and, and one thing that we couldn't really explore as much as we wanted to within that study on alopecia was um, ethnicity as well. So that would be again something worth exploring, I think. Yeah, I think we're talking about this 
really big issue of how people understand appearance and visible difference and there's so many different factors that can can shape that understanding right including gender which is the focus today but also ethnicity sexuality and others so that's really interesting lots of direction for future research there well fabio thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all the really really exciting and interesting work that you've been doing in this area yeah it's been great thank you for having me Next up on the episode, we have Dola Akili Bosun. Dola, welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you today. Thank you so much, Bruna. Um, I'm glad to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Well, before we get started really talking about the topic that we're here to discuss today, I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your role within Changing Faces too. So I happen to be uh, one of a team of wellbeing practitioners offering counselling support and well-being support, which is basically um, similar to talking therapy or inclusive of talking therapy, but invariably it's about offering emotional support to the individual with a visible difference. We do this by talking through the challenges of living with a visible difference. So we work with different age groups uh, we work with children, young people, parents and adults. In my role here at Changing Faces, I work specifically with adults, male and female. So I guess what I'm really, really interested to find out more about today um, in the context of this episode is how, if at all, you've observed the influence of gender in your role. Thank you, Bruna. Um, interesting question. Can I start by saying that um, in our experience here at Changing Faces, only about 20% of our clients fall into the, gen- the male gender, which in itself or- already raises a question, you know, what's going on there? But then of the 20% that do have the courage, and I have to say, I do feel it takes sheer courage for, you know, for our male clients to access our support. Um, But of those 20 percent, 64 percent of those of them, obviously, they all have their visible difference. uh, They experience things like embarrassment, worries and anxieties. So. You know, if 64% of those who come to us have these concerns, then it stands to reason that the others who have not made their way to us probably do have these concerns as well. But for some reason, they haven't, you know, been able to access our service. Now, what's going on beneath the surface? What, why is there this, um, discrepancy in you know or why is there this imbalance um i can't say i know specifically but i might give some suggestions so one is could be um whether people are aware of changing faces and the work we do that might be one reason why maybe we don't get more men coming to us There could also be what I'll call societal expectations. 
Now, to read a quote to you um, from our website, this was um, written by um, our former CEO, Becky Hewitt, and she said this, there's a prevailing attitude, just get on with it and not worry about how they look. I think it's fair to say that this is the general attitude, to be honest. Um, and I'll give an example. I've had um, I've had male clients come through who've expressed how they felt, you know, they were overblowing things in their minds because maybe even a health practitioner has said something like, you know, you just have to live with it. You know, that's it. In extreme cases, you've had somebody say to them, your worries are unfounded. These are the kind of worries that only women concern themselves with. So there's that, you know, there's that thing. And, you know, the old narrative of boys don't cry, you know, and even even sometimes uh, women, the expectations that women have, have of their men and sometimes the expectation men not have of you know, their fellow um, fellow men all feed into this narrative of be strong, be macho, suck it in and move on. You know, as a matter of fact, maybe it's not even so much suck it in. It's more like get on with it. It should not be an issue for you. So maybe with some with some women, it might be suck it in. But with men, the the the, the narrative seems to be more like. That should just not be an issue. And sometimes, you know, they get this from family as well. So there are some uh, clients I've worked with where we talk about, so how did your family deal with this, especially when it's like um, uh, a congenital condition that they've had since they were since childhood, basically. And often you hear people say it wasn't talked about. It wasn't mentioned. Well, invariably, what's that? What's what's the story? What's behind the silence for this child who then grows into adulthood with this, you know, aura of silence around their condition, which bugs them, makes them feel different. And even in school, you know, they're sometimes made to feel different. But then at home, we don't talk about it. So there's all that as well. I think it's fair to to consider the fact that counselling as a profession and um, offering psychological support tends to be more of a female-dominated field. So you've got men having to come to air their stuff to women. Another thing to just, you know, take into consideration would be around accessing feelings. So with my clients, I feel as if, you know, you open the door to a female client. Now, I'm not so much into generalizations, but I am not ignorant of difference. I pay attention to difference. And so it it often feels like I open the door to the therapy room, whether it be physical or, you know, online. And often you find the female client walks right in, takes a seat and is able to own the space and start talking. Sometimes with men, perhaps because of the old narrative of, you know, boys don't cry, you, these things shouldn't bother you. 
as I said, it's taken so much courage to get to the door in the first instance. So now come in, sit down, start talking can be seriously daunting for 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 men. And so um, and yeah, it can be daunting for anyone. But for somebody who's not used to accessing their feelings, it might be very difficult to express or to give language to some of the things that they're feeling. And often I feel like, you know, you have to draw people out and, and recognize that it's not for me personally as a practitioner. It's not so much about the gender as the individual in front of me. What I'm looking for is what does this person need from me in this space? There will always be difference. I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. I'm a certain age, you know, so there will always be difference. Gender is just one of the many. And so it's looking at the difference in the room, bringing that in, making my client feel comfortable to speak with me. And then we work with that. Something else that um, I'd like to chip in, if I may, is the way that men are portrayed. Uh, men with visible difference are often portrayed in the media in movies, for instance, a couple of years ago, Changing Faces had a campaign on um, titled I Am Not Your Villain. Basically, I mean, you look at the Bond movies, for instance, you know, the villain is always the one with a scar or the, you know, some kind of. What does that say? You know, what message are we passing on, not just to men, but also to boys who are, you know, the next generation? So there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of considerations there Bruna um and these are just some of my observations um when it comes to uh, the influence of gender in in my work as practitioner here. Thank you so much Donna that's so interesting to hear your insights on this issue and it's um, clear that it's so complex. Um, as you say, gender is just one. I like the way you phrase that. Gender is just one of the many differences that individuals can present with. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds like you do a wonderful job in your practice about kind of being aware and mindful of these differences and working to working around them. I'm interested. We've you've talked a lot about kind of the different issues and different factors that might come into play when we talk about the experience of men seeking psychological support. But I wonder if you can tell us some more about the specific support that men are looking for or how they understand that support to look like. Uh, that's that's um, a bit of a challenging question um, because there is no one size fits all. But I think bearing in mind that um, the percentage of men who find their way to us is quite low. Those who come to us are very are often, I wouldn't say all the time, but I would say often quite clear about where they stand. So somebody's got a skin condition that they've lived with all their lives or they've um got something they've had surgery as a result of maybe cancer 
And so they're looking significantly different from they've uh, from how they've ever looked before in their lives. They are aware that we cannot change that. Um, and again, I am mindful of making generali- generalizations. Um, I don't want to do that. But I find that sometimes some of the women I have worked with, they're still at that stage especially if it's like an acquired condition, like, say, surgery after having cancer. Sometimes they're still at that stage where they're still grieving the loss of themselves. And so we have to work through that. Perhaps because it takes men a little bit longer to find their way through the door, they tend to have reached that stage of feeling like maybe this is it. So they're not, they are grieving and I suspect they might still grieve the rest of their lives, but the grief is not as strong anymore. They are, they have come to that place where they're trying to come to terms with their altered appearance. And so, They're not saying, I just want to be back to normal or I just want my old face or my old body back. They're basically saying, what can you do for me? Or, and this is often more common with those who've had their conditions from childhood, they might be coming through the door saying something like, I've learned to live with my condition all my life, but I'm about to start a new job and I don't know how to face new people with this. So it also brings to mind what I what I call um, relationship versus transaction. Men sometimes come like, you know, it's a transaction. You know, they they know that it's like. Uh, changing faces we have this um this thing we call goal-based therapy which comes all under well-being support as against if you compare it bruna with um say the narrative approach to counseling where somebody has the opportunity to just tell their story and and of course the narrative will always come into any kind of counseling but with the with the men i find more often than not it's sometimes a bit more of a transaction. This is the goal. This is where I want to get to. They tend to be clearer as to what they want. And perhaps it's because um, they've done more of their grieving before coming to us. You know, I don't know for certain, but, you know, these are just some of my observations. So interesting. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, you touch on kind of so many different issues that I hadn't thought about when kind of thinking about this issue more broadly and it sounds like from your experiences again not all but some or there's generally a a, a trend that men are taking this quite pragmatic approach to psychological support and that's how they're kind of presenting to you so that is so so interesting and and throws up a whole bunch of questions about well how do we properly support men and how do we communicate them in a language sorry communicate with people in a a language that they can understand um, especially when 
discussing quite vague concepts such as psychological support. Yes, um, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we mentioned um, about reaching the individual. So I'm working with the individual in front of me rather than generalizing um, about men. But I am aware of, you know, what might be going on for them. I am aware of, for instance, societal perceptions of having that macho image or, you know, men shouldn't need um, psychological support. I'm aware of that. I'm aware of the fact that it's been, it might, most likely, sorry, I'm aware that it most likely has taken quite a lot of courage for them to um, come and seek support, um, basically for different reasons. But often I think perhaps, um, one, they want to fix their own problems. And then two, the narrative around them is saying, well, you should, this shouldn't be a problem for you. So why would you need to go looking for help? So I bear that in mind when I'm yeah. working with the individual and, um, that kind of helps me to offer more empathy without in any way um, emasculating them, you know, and recognizing that in addition to that general narrative, they might have had some specific experiences individual to them that made them feel put down for even coming through the door. I mean, I can imagine where somebody's been put through um, an experience of being told, you know, there's your effeminate for wanting to seek uh, psychological support. And then they come through the door and the first person they meet is a woman, mm-hmm. you know, so I bear that in mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I often like to affirm them for the courage that it's taken for them to come through. And then I check with them how they feel about working with me as a female as well. And once we've dealt with all those preliminaries, then we can look at how best to help them. Mm. And invariably, you know, it still boils down to working with a one, but bearing in mind the general story around their gender, about, Mm. you know, around being a man. So I hope that helps. <laughs> well, it does. I think I think the summary is that your job is not an easy one. <laughs> You're juggling a lot of a lot of different plates. One thing I have observed is the tendency towards wanting to use their experience to benefit the younger the next generation. And that's been, you know, that's been an interesting observation for me. I'm not saying it doesn't happen with the women, but, you know, when you have um, a small group of people expressing similar interests, then you notice more. And that's something I've noticed with a, with my male clients that they're like, yep, okay, this condition, especially those who've got congenital conditions, they're like, I've had this all my life. School was difficult. Um, I've grown up and I've actually I've developed the confidence, the courage to come into therapy, as it were. Well, I think I'd like to support somebody else. And I'd like to say to the younger generation that it doesn't have to be the way it was for me in school. and 
it's also okay to get psychological help if you know if you want to obviously not everybody wants to but it's it comes across stronger when you have another an older male voice saying to a younger uh, a younger male person that it's okay yeah well Dolla, thank you so much it's been so wonderful to speak with you today um, and to learn from all of your experience and I really thank you for, for sharing that with me and our listeners today. Thank you Bruna it's been a pleasure sharing my experience and um, obviously it's not the end I'm still learning but in the meantime I wish you well I thank you once again for inviting us and um, I wish your listeners all the best and if it's okay to say If you ever need us, we're here, changing faces, offering support to you. If you've got a visible difference, that's why we exist, to support you. Next up on the episode, we have Ryan Phone, who is somebody who's going to speak to us about this issue from a lived experience perspective. So welcome, Ryan, to the podcast. It's wonderful to have you here today. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So I wonder, before we get started, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and your history as well to our listeners. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my name is Ryan and I'm a campaigner for the charity Changing Faces. I was born with a cleft lip and palate. And I like to talk about facial disfigurement and craniofacial disability. I like to talk about it as an equality issue, an identity. I'm interested in talking about areas where those attitudes towards those things come to the fore. So I've previously written about depictions of disfigurement in media and film, and also like talking about the specifics of having a craniofacial disability, how society responds to that and the impact of that on mental well-being. So it sounds, Ryan, like you've done a lot of kind of campaigning um, and activism in this area through Change of Faces. So I'm wondering um, if there's anywhere that our listeners can read more about your work and your writing. Yeah, sure. Um, A few of the things I've written will be on the Changing Faces website. Also, I had a piece published on iNews about the disfigured villain trope, and it was using the recent James Bond film as a point of entry into that subject. Awesome stuff. Well, I'll make sure all of that is linked in our show notes in case anybody wants to have a read. Mainly the issue of what it means to be a man with a visible difference. I wonder if you have any initial reflections for us. Well, over the last few days, I've been thinking about that. And what does come to mind is my experiences of when I first uh, noticed that I was being treated differently as a, as a child, people making inappropriate comments and harassment from strangers, but also at school. When I started to disclose those experiences to people around me, what did keep coming up was this idea that I should perhaps toughen up, that I need to to toughen up. And, I mean, was that a gendered experience? Possibly. I mean, it does sound like the sorts of things that boys and men do get told. And obviously, you know, being told to toughen up is, is very unhelpful because particularly if you have a condition that affects your appearance. That's highly stigmatised. There's a lot of prejudice, which leads to discrimination. And so the problem there isn't, really the problem there isn't the lack of toughness, it's the uh, the abundance of, of hostility. That's that's the problem. And so, and obviously men are 
uh, known to being quite bad at getting help for mental health because they're not great at being vulnerable and talking openly. And there's lots of reasons for that, but maybe it's one of the, the little ingredients there is is when men are young, when they're boys, when they start to show vulnerability and concerns about things, they get told, well, actually, you just you sort of need to toughen up. It's easy to see how those sorts of narratives would really shape the way in which young boys and eventually young men kind of cope and the help that they do or don't seek, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And I guess, too, when we're talking about appearance, um, that's historically been an issue that's perhaps been considered a woman's issue, right? So that may pose additional challenges with regards to seeking support in this area. Does that resonate with your experiences at all? Yeah, I think men can be quite disconnected from talking about uh, their appearance and that can have a knock-on effect of less solidarity among men for other men, but also across gender, so there's less discussion. And uh, yeah, we, we're just not used to talking about men as individuals who may experience serious appearance-based discrimination. And, you know, it completely makes sense that it's known as a as a feminist issue because there are lots of ways that women are affected but I think yeah there's a problem with men not not engaging in that kind of um that sort of uh, discussion you know like it's been pointed out to me that at changing faces they find it hard for they then often get men coming forward to be campaigners it's mainly women and the reason for that might be you know all sorts of things but men aren't quite as used to talking about that and also um, a lot of appearance activism tends to be quite because appearance is obviously visual campaigning tends to be usually quite visual platforms like it's usually glamour based you know let's get these people who look quote different in a photo shoot in fashion in makeup on a catwalk and if that's not your thing then if that's if that's what appearance activism looks like from the outside if that's not how you express yourself you may think appearance activism isn't for you and so that doesn't necessarily say why men don't get involved but it might explain why certain people don't get involved and the uh, the consequences of that may may have some sort of gender explanation too yeah that's really interesting i hadn't thought about that issue of what does activism look like and how do we do activism? And then what does that mean for certain people, right, including men? Um, and was that something that you were mindful of when you decided to kind of join forces with Changing Faces and become a campaigner for them, that you wanted to increase that representation of men in that space? I did, in, in a way. Um, it's funny because I'm on the subject of men not being good at talking about how this issue affects them. I've over the last few days, I've had to really think, you know, I, I think about this subject all the time, but I, I'm not experienced in thinking about the gender implications. So if, if I'm not, you know, if I have to sit and think about it, then, then it, it does show that there is there is a kind of a, um, men aren't used to thinking about the way their gender mixes in with it. And I guess, Ryan, when we talk about visible differences, it's wide ranging, right? And that can encompass a whole host of conditions. Um, for yourself, your experience is with craniofacial conditions. So I wonder if you've got any reflections on that at all. Well, I think if you tried to summarise 
the situation, the stakes of the situation of being born with a craniofacial disability is essentially you're born with a face that's considered too different. And the proposed solution that society has is to make it look less different. And whilst it's recognised you will be discriminated against, instead of society tackling that discrimination, it instead tries to avoid the discrimination with assimilation. The problem with that is it makes disfigurement the issue, and really the issue, the cause of any sort of psychological distress all stems from society's refusal to accept us as we are. And also, how does someone like myself, my cleft, or rather, or someone like myself, my cleft has always been a part of who I am. However, how does someone like me reach a place of self-acceptance when, for as long as I can remember, I was given health care that defined an immutable part of my identity as something in need of correction? And obviously, I think a lot of the the, uh, the perspective on this situation is people think surgery is very positive. They think, oh, isn't it great? They're fixing your face. They're doing this. And the thing is, you can't fix a face without first calling it broken. And the psychological implications of that are you know, massive. And really, the way society responds is very flawed because assimilation is not a suitable uh, response to discrimination. And if you have a craniofacial condition, you're trapped in this ethical kind of mess and that needs psychological support. And men are notoriously bad at getting that support because their ideas about masculinity, not wanting to appear vulnerable or supposedly weak. And so that that's a real problem, I think, for men in this position. It's a problem for everyone, but for men it can be maybe particularly hard to get that necessary psychological help. Thanks, Ryan, for sharing all those really interesting reflections. And we've we talked about so many different factors that could be particularly important for men with visible differences. And to finish, I would love to hear your thoughts on what do you think is kind of needed in this area? What's currently missing? How can we better support men? Well, I think if you are a person who is who wants to have solidarity for people who experience prejudice and discrimination, first of all, I think the issue of disfigurement discrimination or visible difference discrimination, it's really not on a lot of people's radar. Um, even people who are particularly into social justice. So I hope, my hope would be that more people um, become allies and become, you know, sort of make themselves aware and sort of learn about those things. And also, speaks specifically to men, I think, I think we can support men better by recognising that they experience, or rather there are men who can experience very serious appearance-based discrimination, but also men need to be better at supporting each other as well in a in a sort of enlightened way. Definitely, I agree. And would you have any advice for any men with visible differences who may be listening in today? I suppose the advice that I would, sometimes I get asked this, and I think about what advice would be helpful for me a younger version of me and I often think what's really important is to learn to question the ideas that cause you shame because there are lots of ideas in the culture that will tell you that 
disfigurement is bad, visible difference is bad, and there's nothing inherently bad about it. The stuff that's bad is is the stigma. And if you learn to question those ideas, all of that stuff can start to fall away. Because otherwise, I don't know, I think that's that's quite an essential ingredient to, to learn to question those ideas. It's a really, really important and helpful message. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. I hope our listeners found that interesting. I know I certainly did. I think the influence of gender on both experiences of and adjustment to visible difference is so, so complex. I think, you know, as as we heard from Dollar, it's important not to generalise, right? And we mm-hmm. not to say that everybody with a visible difference struggles. And in the case of today's episode, it's not to say that every man with a visible difference struggles. But I think what our guests really shed light on today is how modern Western society views masculinity and how Mm. men are socialised and the impact that that potentially has on, for example, the way in which men seek or don't seek help, right, especially when it comes to psychological support. So I I think we could talk about this topic forever, Nadia. Yeah, I I think so too, but I think you summarised that really, really nicely there. Before we close, of course, we have to thank our guests, Fabio, Dollar and Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us on the episode today and sharing your unique insights into this topic. Definitely. And thank you to you, our listeners, for listening to Appearance Matters, the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All of the links are in our bio. Until next time. Bye. Bye.